Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by TunnelBear, who know how difficult it can be to stay ahead of online security threats. That is why they recently had a third-party audit of the security on all their apps, code, and servers. You can learn about that on their blog. You can also try their award-winning VPN app for free when you go to tunnelbear.com slash CanadaLand. Guys, before the show today, I also want to tell you that The Imposter is back for its second season, and the first episode is really good. It's really ambitious. It's really funny. And what Aaliyah is doing is she's examining a lot of what goes on behind comedy, punching up versus punching down, laughing with versus laughing at, all the power dynamics and the politics of comedy, which sounds like it couldn't possibly be funny, but it is. Because this season, Aaliyah is trying to discuss those things and explore them by learning how to be a comedian. She is going to stand up an improv class at Second City, full disclosure, they're the sponsor of this story arc in The Imposter, and she's learning the craft while she sort of deconstructs it. There are a lot of comedy podcasts out there. I don't think that there are any quite like this. If you are not listening to The Imposter, do yourself a favor and go check out episode one of season two right now. Well, it is unanimous. Heritage Minister Melanie Jolie has failed. Actually, it's worse than that. She has suffered a stunning fall from grace. She has been roasted and ridiculed as naive, and, you know, she seems unable to even understand why. She is feeble. Her Creative Canada plan, a total overhaul of Canadian cultural policy, a plan desperately needed by the film, music, TV, and news industries, among others, to protect them from foreign internet companies who are wreaking havoc with their business models. Well, that plan is a failure. It is fuzzy. It is half-baked. It barely moved the dial. It fails to address the real concerns of content creators. In her home province of Quebec, the media's verdict has been particularly harsh. Jolie has been assailed. She has been savaged. One TV interview was particularly aggressive and embarrassing. And now they're calling her a cassette. Just press play and she'll spit out her talking points. It didn't have to be this way. She could have done something. She could have forced Netflix and YouTube and Amazon and all the rest to make Canadian content. 
She could have forced Facebook and Google to bail out the newspaper industry. She could have taxed them. She could have regulated them. She could have saved CanCon. But she didn't, and all Canadian citizens should be disappointed in Melanie Jolie because she could have protected jobs in the Canadian media. So says the Canadian media, the old Canadian media. In fact, everything I just said, all of the descriptives of Jolie, I copied them directly from a barrage of ferociously critical legacy media coverage of the Creative Canada plan and of Jolie herself. Opinion pieces, sure, but also news reports in the Globe and Mail and elsewhere. And this media pylon against Jolie, which has just been relentless and hectoring and pedantic and infantilizing of her, at times hateful of her, you might say sexist, but it's like nothing I've seen before from the media towards a politician outside of a genuine political scandal. I mean, if she had smoked crack and denied it, if she was lying about basic facts to reporters' faces, then it would make sense. But this closing of ranks against her, the egging on of one another against her, this daily assault on her competence, on her very tenability in cabinet, it's hard not to look at it and ask the obvious question. Don't you guys all have a personal stake in this? Isn't your job among those that you're demanding she save? I have a personal stake in this. I think digital media companies like Canada Land will always be at a disadvantage if government can-con schemes are dedicated to keeping the old players alive at any cost. That's my disclosure. So what's theirs? Guys, I am not going to debate any of those pundits that I was quoting earlier on the show today. Their opinions are out there. They're very well represented if you want to read them. And besides, they're all arguing about policy and sometimes it does not seem like they understand the policy. Like some of them were arguing that the half billion dollars that Jolie secured from Netflix for new Canadian productions, that that was money that Netflix was already spending here anyway. And besides, they argue the government will have no way of enforcing the deal. I looked into that. I, I checked with the government. I went through the whole deal with somebody who knows it well, and they're saying that neither of those things are true. It's all new Netflix money for new productions, and at least I was told the government does have a mechanism to enforce the deal. I'm told that that is possible through this policy, and policy is what we're going to discuss today, the practical measures government can and cannot take. I mean, is it even possible to save CanCon from the internet? Can this old system we have here of putting aside a few bucks from every Canadian's cable bill putting it into a pot of money that Bell and Rogers and the rest use to make Canadian TV shows with, is that even possible policy-wise to move that over and recreate that online? And if it were, do we want to? That is what I'm going to talk about today. And I'm going to talk about it with somebody who knows the policy, internet law professor, Michael Geist. But I will speak today also with somebody who does disagree with me. Not about taxes and regulations and policy, not necessarily those things, but about the idea of it all, about the relationship that government has and should have to art. I should mention that part of Melanie Jolie's plan is a rejection of Ed Greenspawn's newspaper bailout proposal, which we've spoken about a lot on this show. So that is one impact that is going to require its own episode, which we'll do a little down the line. But for now, Professor Michael Geist, wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Mark Rossini, Anetta Parahinitz, Chris Barless, Aubrey Nealon, Susan Newhook, William Jensen, Thomas Evers, and Ashley Martin. Ashley, why did you decide to be awesome? I like hearing about the work being done by Canadian journalists, good and bad. The discussion is always honest and engaging. And this episode is brought to you by Tunnel Bear. I do not read privacy policies online. Uh, I feel like they are written in like ancient hieroglyphics. In a better world, companies like Google and Uber would take a page out of TunnelBear's book and provide their customers with a human readable privacy policy that makes it easy to understand exactly what information is being collected and why. 
Privacy, after all, is TunnelBear's business. They are the best solution out there for a VPN that you could use anywhere to make sure that all of your internet traffic is encrypted. If you have any questions about TunnelBear's privacy practices, you can even email their privacy team directly at privacy at tunnelbear.com. When you're on their site, you can learn more about their products and company. Their apps are available on Android, iOS, Mac, and Windows, and they are very, very easy to install. You can try TunnelBear for free at tunnelbear.com slash Canada Land. Finally, this episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. FreshBooks, the founding sponsor of Canada Land, they make cloud accounting software. They make billing painless. But that doesn't do them justice. That does not adequately explain, I think, the relationship that FreshBook has in the lives of the people who use it. Because this thing that you use, that you try out and then subscribe to, just to solve a problem, to make billing painless, it actually becomes something more to you. It becomes your your business buddy. It becomes your mission control for your small business, for any freelancer. It is a thoughtful piece of software that is just designed to provide tools that help you save time and run your business more easily. It is an accounting department for your small business. I have been to FreshBooks kind of incredible new offices, and there are just tons of very smart people there dedicated to making an increasingly helpful and powerful tool for people like me, perhaps people like you, if you are a freelancer or running a small business. You can save a ton of time. You can get paid quicker. You can look very well put together and professional to your clients. Check it out. Have a look at what I'm talking about at freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Give it a whirl. You can do so for free. No credit card required. If you decide to become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you. Why has culture always mattered to Canadians? Why should it matter now? We spent the last 80 years developing cultural policies that preserve these strengths. We are champions for our creative industries. Today, I'm announcing the first of these agreements on behalf of the Government of Canada and Netflix. Under this agreement, Netflix will create Netflix Canada, a permanent film and television production presence here in Canada. They have agreed to invest a minimum of $500 million in original productions in Canada in both official languages over the next five years. Michael, this is like a difficult, like painful question for me to ask you, but this new plan from Heritage, this new uh, Creative Canada thing from the Trudeau government, is it good? Is it good? Well, I think it, I think there is lot there is a lot to like about it. Netflix is the star, and uh, and we can certainly talk about Netflix and the reaction to it. But to me, the big story was that despite months of lobbying for regulations, taxes, even media bailouts, the government rejected all of that. And I think that's a, that's a really important part of the story. It's not something you necessarily put on a billboard to say it could have been a lot worse, but it could have been a lot worse. And in fact, I think what they've tried to do is come up with something that generally is forward-looking, that, that avoids that pressure and perhaps some temptation to move towards more taxing and regulation and recognize that the internet and new technologies provide a whole lot of opportunities, and they're going to look to play a role there, both by helping to foster and facilitate creativity at home, export of that creativity elsewhere, uh, and recognize that in, with respect to some of the large foreign players, it isn't regulation that's going to get them to play a role in helping foster more Canadian creativity. It could have been worse if they had given the entrenched players what they wanted. It couldn't have been worse, perhaps, for a lot of those people. They're crying bloody murder over this plan. I mean, the uh, the, the backlash was immediate and it just kept coming. Does this leave people out in the cold? What have you made of the response from Canada's news industry, but more so Canada's uh, film and TV industry? Yeah, let's focus for at least to, to begin with on the cultural side, and then we can talk, if you like, a bit about the media side, which kind of got dragged into this and wasn't, I don't think, initially part of the story, but of course it eventually became one. I think it's instructive that a lot of the, the traditional 
copyright lobby group. Some of the ones who were looking for regulation actually haven't been that critical. They've, they, they took a look and said, you know what? There is some new funding here. Uh, that's one of the things that we were looking for. There is more money, at least a new commitment from Netflix, whether it's new money or not is subject to debate, but there's certainly now a, a clear longer term commitment from Netflix. That's a lot of what they were looking for. And so their criticism has been, I think, a bit more reserved. In fact, they've generally said it's good, but, um, and the but is that there's some, I guess, ongoing questions. That said, there is certainly this this new sort of political, largely Quebec-based constituency that has been incredibly angry and incredibly vocal about the Netflix deal in particular. And I suppose in some ways, it shouldn't surprise us completely. I don't think Netflix, the Netflix deal was really what the government had in mind as their, as their star of the show. I actually think they were thinking a lot about the new money that they were investing and the fact that they weren't going to tax and the like. But once there was this Netflix deal, it became, of course, the lightning rod for all of this. And, and from my perspective, there's more than a little bit of hypocrisy in groups that before this announcement, had spent the better part of a year or two criticizing Netflix for not investing in Canada, and then turn around and now criticize the government for striking a deal that confirms Netflix will invest in Canada, claiming that somehow this is a sellout when for months they were asking for, in fact, demanding that Netflix play a bigger role in the Canadian industry. I don't think it's true that like the Bells and Rogers of the world care particularly if Netflix makes an investment in Canada. They just don't want Netflix to cannibalize or disrupt their businesses. You don't know. Well, that's certainly right. It's not, you know, for the, the Bells who've been quite critical. I don't think they were focused per se on Netflix investment in content. It's been some of the, the cultural group sides of that groups that were. And they've now, in a sense, gotten at least part of what they asked for. They would love for just there to be money and for it to be doled out rather than Netflix being able to be strategic about how that money gets spent. But nevertheless, that's from the perspective of some better than the alternative of not having that kind of investment. When it comes to companies like Bell, though, the arguments around level playing fields and taxation really don't add up. On the taxation side, and we've, of course, heard a lot about that, too, this notion that somehow Netflix doesn't pay tax and uh, we need a level playing field so that it pays tax. On corporate income tax, I mean, that's a, that's a broader government issue. Indeed, for sales taxes, that's a broader government issue for all sorts of digital services. And it's certainly clear that, that any revenues that might be generated, let's say, through the application of GST or HST, wouldn't go directly to the cultural file at all. It would simply go to general revenues. There are lots of countries that are, are now trying to sort that issue out. And I think there is some inevitability that eventually Canada will move towards taxing these kinds of services, but they're going to do it, I think, alongside many other countries as you try to develop some standards. I think it's also true that the difference between having a tax and not having a tax makes for the overwhelming majority of Netflix subscribers not a whit of difference in terms of whether or not they subscribe to Netflix or, let's say, Bell's alternative, Crave TV. Yeah. The, the, the difference in the content that's available, the convenience and all of those sorts of issues is what's driving the decision, not the difference between having to pay tax on one and not paying tax on the other. So in a sense, the debate or the, the noise about sales tax is a bit of a sideshow. The, the other element though is I think even more problematic. And that's, that, that are these claims around there's a lack of a level playing field. And so you've got to find a way to regulate Netflix in order to create this level playing field. And I think on further examination, that simply just doesn't add up. Yeah, let me unpack those two things a little bit because it's a bit frustrating a lot of the, you know, the the stuff you hear around this. I I don't know if it's in good faith or not, but a lot of the stuff that people complain about is just not even relevant or sometimes not even possible. There's two things that this plan from Melanie Jolie rejects. One is you say is that oh why why doesn't Netflix pay HST? It's not fair. Crave TV if you if you subscribe to Crave, they have to you, you have to pay HST on that subscription, so how come not this one? So like you say, that probably doesn't factor in when you're paying like eight or nine bucks a month. Uh, it's not going to be the HST that influences that decision. But even so, even if they put an HST on Netflix, that wouldn't go into the content production system. And the reason they don't, if I'm hearing you right, is uh, we're probably working towards taxing these services, but you can't just tax Netflix. This is about a new tax regime where you're going 
going to have to figure out international standards and the Canadian application thereof for taxing any kind of internet-based subscription service. So it's sort of like a, um, a categorization error to put this into the CanCon, CanCulture debate. It's a larger taxation issue. Does that sound about right? Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. It's, okay. It is not solely about CanCon. And I think it's worth noting that if we were to establish a system that simply said we're going to tax all digital services, let's recognize there are lots of digital services that, that might have a handful or a couple hundred Canadian subscribers where the cost of administering GST collection and remission would far exceed the actual benefits that we'd get out of it as ta as as a government in terms of tax revenues and the costs to the business would be so so great that they'd likely simply avoid the Canadian market altogether because they just don't want to incur those extra costs which would eat away at any benefits they'd have from trying to sell into Canada. Okay. And so what you need are these kinds of standards to ensure that you tax some of the larger players, the ones that where we're talking about some serious dollars and can handle it, uh, and you do so in a manner that's as efficient as possible. That requires really global standards, and we're not quite there yet. So the other thing that frustrates me is when industry has been saying, you know, everybody else has to put money into the CanCon system for production of Canadian stuff. Why not Netflix? Uh, we need a Netflix tax that is specifically taxing them to make, you know, take those tax dollars and make Canadian productions. And that always struck me as such a strange idea that we would have a tax for one company, because of course you can't say this is a tax for Netflix and Netflix alone. You would have to create a category, which is okay. If you're, if you're selling subscriptions to video services, then you have to pay for Canadian content to be made. And there's probably thousands of websites from pornographic websites to, you know, even, you know, uh, the YouTubes or, you know, is, is it just about video, not sound? Anybody selling subscriptions for content? Where do you draw these lines? And how do you regulate and enforce that when you've got some companies that are selling subscriptions to access for video content that isn't scripted, be it user-generated content or news content? Do they also have to put it in? So you're essentially saying that the government needs to start taxing every, at least every video subscription service on the internet, which is a headache that like you could see why government would just be like, no, we're not even going to get near that. That's just a, a non-starter. It's almost an impossibility. But all, but all focus has been on, on Netflix just because they've been the most successful. I mean, Prime Video, Amazon, the list just doesn't end, right? Right. Well, presumably, if you had that kind of system, it would apply across the board. And you're right. Some of the line drawing is very difficult. But I don't I don't think we, we should ignore the fact that the reality is there is already, especially for online video services, a level playing field. The approach that we've had in Canada now for more than 15 years is that if you are only an online video service, whether you're based in Canada or the United States or wherever, you're largely unregulated. That's a CRTC decision that goes back for a very long time now. And so even the Canadian-based services like a Crave TV do not face CanCon contribution requirements for their service or spending requirements. As anyone who's seen the commercials know, they, they do a whole lot of promoting shows like Seinfeld and The Sopranos. And so it's an unregulated largely unregulated space, at least in terms of CanCon-related issues, it's level. There are Canadian companies that are doing it. There's Netflix that are doing it. They've got the same standards. Michael, I get your argument that, uh, you know, if we're going to do an apples-to-apples -apples thing here, any Canadian company is uh, absolutely free to create their own Netflix competitor, be it uh, I Crave TV or whatever the, you know, <laughs> no one's done a terribly good job of it, but, but they would also be playing in an unregulated space and that would be apples to apples. I also can appreciate the uh, traditional broadcaster's point of view saying, I don't give a damn if you're calling that an orange and we're an apple. It's a big fight for the same thing, which is people's TV dollar and their TV dollars are migrating from cable to this online stuff. So now it's time for you to regulate online. And the government has said no thanks because uh, essentially extending CRTC governance to the internet is something the CRTC has, has said again and again, they're not going to do when it comes to content, nor necessarily should they, because the whole, the whole foundational thinking about why we consider broadcasting like a public trust is because it was, it was on this finite resource of uh, bandwidth, of frequency that belongs to the public and that we were deal-making with the people who wanted to exploit it commercially. And that, that whole concept seems blown to smithereens at this point. It does, but if we, if we, I'm happy to have the debate in the context of 
of, of the broadcaster argument that says, you know what, this still feels like Netflix still feels from a consumer perspective, like a broadcaster or a broadcast distributor. And if we're talking about level playing fields just in that context, let's first note that U.S. broadcasters, who, of course, are have been readily available for decades to Canadians, don't face any CanCon requirements. But even if we say that, well, they're, it's as if they're operating in Canada, they're just like a Canadian broadcaster or a broadcast distributor. Let's think about all the advantages that those broadcasters and broadcast distributors have that Netflix does not. That if we're going to talk about a level playing field, if anything, the advantages all lie in the hands of the Canadian broadcasters and broadcast distributors. They've got simultaneous substitution as a policy that we know generates hundreds of millions of dollars for the industry by blocking out U.S. signals and imposing the Canadian signal on it. This, of course, just for people who uh, don't know, is when you watch the Super Bowl and you don't get the big American ad, you get a Canadian ad instead. That simultaneous substitution lets the Canadian broadcaster. That's right. Last year, last year, you did have the ability to watch the U.S. feed, but for lots of other shows where there's a Canadian license on it, you get the Canadian feed, not the U.S. feed. We have must-carry regulations that require cable and satellite companies to include Canadian channels on base on basic cable and satellite packages that guarantees access to millions of subscribers who are actively paying for these signals. And you've got no choice, no ability to opt out of that, even from a basic package. You've got bundling benefits where the Canadian channels we know get bundled with, in many instances, the more popular U.S. channels that guarantees revenue to the broadcasters. We've got copyright retransmission rules that for a long period of time have created an exemption in the Copyright Act that let the cable companies retransmit the signals without infringing copyright. And for long periods of time, they never even paid for that privilege. They do now. They've had market protection. And so Canadian broadcasters were shielded from foreign competition like HBO and ESPN for decades. We've got Canadian players that are eligible for Canadian funding programs and tax credits. And as you'll pointed out, companies like Netflix are frequently ineligible for those. We've got foreign investment restrictions that limit the ability of foreign operators, in many instances, to own a significant portion of the Canadian broadcasters or BDUs, thereby reducing competition. And if you're Netflix, you're dealing with all sorts of distribution challenges, including subscribers who often face caps and usage charges. If anything, our regulatory framework creates all sorts of advantages for broadcasters and broadcast distributors. And so this claim that somehow it's simply about a contribution. If anything, the contribution they make is effectively a quid pro quo, where they get a whole series of legislative and regulatory advantages that have generated hundreds of millions of dollars. Netflix gets none of those. And to suggest that somehow it's an uneven uneven playing field, unless Netflix makes a contribution, it's only level if somehow you address all the other advantages that have been built into the system. Well, and, and good God, why would we? I mean, uh, Irene Berkowitz points out in The Globe, and, and finally, a piece that looks at the, the possible positive side of the system. Uh, a weakness of our system, she writes, has been that our broadcasters make Canadian content only as a license obligation. The cultural side of that is what I want to focus on for a second, that we have, we've created this industry of Canadian TV production where everybody is going hat in hand for a green light from broadcasters that are only fulfilling an obligation. They typically don't make a lot of money by making these Canadian shows. They're just checking off, you know, this is what they owe the system in order to keep showing us the Big Bang Theory and whatnot. That's, I think, sickened the creative community that your, your, your partner, your broadcaster is not trying to make a deal with you because they think you're amazingly talented and have a great new idea that's going to be the most hot new TV show, but uh, they, they, they have to do this. Why would we preserve a system like that? I mean, it, it, it feels to me like the government has made a very firm stance here that they are not looking for ways to extend that mentality and that kind of like taxation into new production system, that, that they're happy for that to dwindle and die as people cut their cords. And, you know, like I, I for one, feel like I welcome our new streaming overlords. Well, I think what the government's recognized is that the, the new streaming players represent a, a really a different model and a different mindset, I think, as you're suggesting, in terms of how stuff gets made and how Canada can succeed in that in that kind of world. I was struck after there were the, the early leaks before Jolie even had the chance to announce uh, around the Netflix deal. And some of the media coverage started talking about the lack of of details on what the program would be and how people could apply for it as if this was just yet another government 
government-funded or government-backed system where you apply essentially for a grant, not operating in a marketplace where you've got now big global players that are actually interested in investing in Canada, see the talent, believe in the market, and are willing to put their money where their mouth is uh, by investing hundreds of millions of dollars. But that is a significant shift, at least in the mindset, I think, of many who have long been reliant on a system that has been heavily dependent on, it only happens if you've got an established funding program to make it happen. In fact, even when there was discussion during the consultation about the fact that foreign financing has become an increasingly important part of how English language TV in particular gets made. And Netflix had noted, even during the consultation, that Canada was one of the top three countries in the world for productions. This is even before the deal itself. You had groups saying, well, how do we know Netflix is going to continue in Canada? Well, now the government's gone out and actually got them the commitment to know that they are. But of course, even that mindset is all wrong. It's not about whether or not you force the company to be in Canada. It's that you attract the country to be in Canada because you offer a real value proposition, both on the basis of the talent that's here and the framework more generally, including things like the tax credits and other sorts of systems that we've got in place. It's funny, actually, this idea of the, the, the established players are basically lining up saying, well, I don't even understand which form do I fill out to get this money? And, uh, and does it matter that I know Robert Lantos or that I, you know, like it, it's a whole new paradigm. And what, what I kind of felt like really surprised by this, this plan was, I mean, was, you know, beyond just, oh, I hope they don't extend the system. I hope they don't cave to this pressure to, to somehow, you know, tax or try to regulate Netflix. They they did something that I don't think I've ever seen Heritage do, which is like they almost went out like a Hollywood deal maker and they got us a deal. Because where I always ran into trouble with my argument, as, as much as I have these criticisms of the system, I recognize the human cost to this industry disappearing tomorrow. You know, that it's brutal for them to be disrupted in this way. And, you know, the acceleration of these changes, you know, it only gets steeper and steeper. And the entire production community only has known this one system. So if there was a role for government and not just flinging this to some laissez-faire, hey, if you can't make shows that people want to stream online, then, you know, tough shit. Uh, here you've got government saying, okay, well, we've drummed up a transitional period here. We, we've got a deal with Netflix for Canada and they're going to set up an office and they're going to put $500 million in. And in my conversations with a, a senior government official, they tell me that they hope that's a precedent and they're, they're talking to the other players and trying to get similar commitments so that these companies – actually uh, to avoid re- being regulated, essentially say, okay, they're worse fates than making some original productions with Canada. We'll make some money available and, and maybe something will actually be a success. It feels like they've actually done something here that could smooth that transition. But Michael, they can only do it once, right? If that's their threat is, you know, pony up some cash for original production uh, or we're going to have to look at regulatory options. You can only do that. You can't come back five years later and say, okay, we want another $500 million or we're going to regulate you. No, you can't. I mean, the whole point of this is not to threaten to get regulated, threaten regulation to try to get something. It's to convince that it's in Netflix and perhaps other country companies' interests to invest and participate in the marketplace, that they've got a lot of subscribers here, they're making a lot of money here, and that creating here makes good business sense. It's not a regulation argument. It's in many ways a business argument. And I think it's it's an argument that won out here. I think if there's there's a risk here, it's that you're right. The, the minister and the department have talked about hoping that this becomes a precedent. And I think there is a a real danger that uh, this was designed in a sense to be, here's a showcase example, the kinds of things we can do, although each company's business model is different. And so not everybody's approach would be the same. The problem is when you look at the blowback that's taken place, I've got to think that a lot of those other businesses are thinking, why, why bother with the headache? And so, you know, the claims around uh, level playing fields and stuff, if they if they ring a bell, to me, it brought back from several years ago, and you'll, of course, recall this well, the battle that the big three, Bell, Rogers, and TELUS engaged in when it looked like Verizon was entering into the marketplace on wireless. And the claim was, we need a level playing field before we allow a big global telecom player to come into the marketplace. Verizon ultimately said, when they saw all this noise and pushback, what's the point? It's not worth it. I'll just I'll just skip the market altogether. And I've got to believe that as the Googles of the world and Facebooks of the world and some of the other larger players look at at what's taken place over the, the last week or so in this period since the minister unveiled this, 
even if they were thinking about these kinds of deals, they might think that there really isn't a whole lot of point. You're just going to be dragged into these political controversies. And ironically, those that purport to want to see the Canadian cultural sectors succeed are in many ways through this actually pushing away some of the very players that would help them do that. I think I understand. Yeah. So if if Netflix thought that they were going to have a good press day in Canada when they committed a half a billion dollars and instead they just get trashed with op-ed after op-ed in the Globe and and, and elsewhere, then what's the point? Um, and I suppose the, the only point I can think of is if it actually turns out to be good business for them. I mean, I, I think that that's the real question here. It's all well and good to say, okay, there's a transitional fund here or maybe a few of them uh, and there's some goodwill from these companies and the government's going to help. We're going to try to get this sector to grow up and compete with the big guys on a big stage. And that's great if they can do it. What if they can't? Like what if we've just gotten too used to doing like, you know, Mr. D and these shows? Like like what if we, 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 we have built the entire industry to suit the current funding model and it's not going to transition into being a competitive player in this new, I would argue, much more merit-based even playing field. I mean, what is an even playing field is I got a bunch of stuff I could watch on Netflix, and the fact that something's Canadian is not really going to compel me to watch it just because of that. Well, I mean, I think the answer to that is that we are succeeding. The question, and, and you can take a look at the numbers, especially the productions that take place and are filmed in Canada. Now, lots of those are not defined or characterized as CanCon for certain regulatory, legal, or financing purposes. One of the issues that Jolie didn't touch, and again, one can only imagine the kind of response that would have gotten from the established industry, but uh, I think that in many ways, it's, it's one of the elephants that's in the room. I suppose we've got a few, so it's a pretty big room, is how we define CanCon. Because if what you are talking about is the very narrow kind of box-ticking exercise that we have today, or even programs and movies that are made using well-known Canadian novels and using all sorts of what we what I think most would think of as cancon but don't tick the right boxes and so therefore don't qualify formally as can they don't qualify so well we meanwhile uh, things like amazing race Canada do qualify so yeah, the- yeah I mean it's it's a it's a system and it's an industry that in many ways has built itself around how we define it we are one of, if not the most restrictive in terms of how we, how we engage in those, some, in some of those definitions. And so one of the things that I think will keep coming back, and it was there sort of at the periphery this time, but the minister decided not to engage with it directly, is whether or not we need to rethink how we define CanCon so that we can encapsulate, I think, a far broader range of content that is both of interest and reflective of Canadian culture and Canadian content for us at home as well as abroad. Michael, thank you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. But guys, what about art? That is the question asked by Ira Wells in his piece in The Walrus. And it was one piece of critical coverage of Melanie Jolie's plan that didn't feel like just another pile-on. Because Wells put things in historical perspective. He reminded us why we have cultural protections in Canada in the first place. It wasn't done to create jobs. It was done to create art. The Massey Commission, which ended in 1951, was not an attempt to get Canada to jump aboard mass media. It was a statement of Canadian defiance against mass media. It was an effort to protect the, quote, spiritual foundations of our national life and the quality of the Canadian mind and spirit. This quality, the Massey Report stated, is determined by what Canadians think and think about, by the books they read, the pictures they see, and the programs they hear. This was government policy that was championing the human spirit, championing art. And compared to that, Melanie Jolie's plan for more Canadian Netflix shows might look a little unambitious. As Ira Wells puts it in The Walrus, Jolie's plan is to cultural policy what tweets are to literature, what LinkedIn is to poetry, and what Facebook is to friendship. Here is my chat with Ira Wells. Ira, I think that you hated this deal from Heritage for the exact same reasons why I think I might like it. So maybe we can start by why you liked it. Well, based on what you wrote in The Walrus about this, where you compare it to the uh, Massey Commission, you contrast the Massey Commission where the authors spoke of arts and letters, Creative Canada speaks of content creators. And you, right. you, I think, very effectively compare these two very different visions of what government should be doing in its cultural policy. And you know, I think about the Master Report, and I think about it, it predated him, but like just I, it conjures up images to me of uh, Pierre Trudeau doing pirouettes and and sort of uh, an affluent society in Canada trying to you know make its mark in the world and growing up in a cosmopolitan Canada, saying we can have great poetry too, and this is how we're going to distinguish ourselves from the Americans. And you know, you say quite right, like it's it's almost unthinkable now to have government talking about how we need art and culture to define ourselves and to not simply be a society of materialism. And they then crafted this cultural policy that that every one of us who exists in the cultural fields or communicative fields or journalism, uh, we've been living under that regime ever since. So what I like about this new deal is that it seems to toss all of that right out the window. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I guess, you know, the the uh, the people who wrote the Massey report were very conscious of the charge of elitism. They did not want to be called elitists. In fact, I think that they didn't even, if, if I'm correct about this, they didn't even use the term culture in their um, in their report. But nonetheless, what I think is, is valuable about that report, or what I like about it, is that they at least seem to value value the concept that they wouldn't name. They seem to have some sort of investment in the idea of culture. Um, in a way that I, I feel is just completely absent from Creative Canada. I feel as though it's, um, when you look at a document who was you know, at the first bullet point is is a con- construing culture as an engine of economic growth and competitive yes. advantage. Well, Jesse, like, is that is that your, um, like, when you think of the culture that has most moved you, that has been most important for you, do you, do you has that been a uh, culture that has, it was produced for the intention of being an engine of economic growth and competitive No, advantage. it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's vulgar. It's, it's debased. It's, uh, without passion. It's, it's with, it's, it's like a, a Philistines conception that it's just there as an economic device of some kind. I mean, it, 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 it betrays, it ignores the human soul and spirit. I agree with you. So, so we agree that this is, that this is a, a cultural policy without the culture. Well, I think that we agree that it's, it's, it's government policy as to government's relationship with culture that looks at things in the crudest terms of, of, of that this is just an economy to us and we're just trying to support, support right. the economy. Right. I mean, look, let's, let's not put too fine a point on it. I think that if we're to compare these two visions by their ideals, I'm probably firmly on your side that art and culture is integral to the human experience and, and to define it in such a reductive way is uh, an insult. But this is government talking. 
And so I may have been a bit unfair when I said that they don't define culture at all in, in the new document because they do. They say at the very end of the, the policy statement, um, it's they say that um, people are consuming more information and cultural content, not less. More than that, they are looking for a sense of meaning and belonging in the world. The arts and culture, our creative industries, provide that meaning and that sense of belonging. So they do. They do sort of you know give provide some. They gesture in some broad way to what we're talking about, but I just I feel as though their their heart's not in it. Who cares where their heart is? This is this is the government. Look, if if we're just comparing one set of ideals against the other, uh, like I say, I, I I know which one appeals to me more and which feels right to me. But we don't have to judge the Massey Commission by its principles or its or its ideals or its thoughts about art. We can judge it by whether it worked or not. Right? We can, we can right. look at sixty six years of this policy in action and what it has meant for cultural pursuits in Canada. I, I think you wrote like a very convincing, passionate plea, but like if it falls short anywhere, it's that there's sort of a passing reference to Leonard Cohen and Margaret Atwood. And like, like it feels like, oh yeah, that's what we talk about when we talk about that. It yeah, mani- manifested right. so- in work. That's what we are capable of. That's what the Massey Commission was all about. The reason why I chose Cohen and Atwood is that they're, they're two artists that, I, that immediately came to mind who'd won Canada Council grants. You know, we could replace them with, with any number of others, um, and they just seem sort of relevant to the cultural conversation right now with, with Leonard Cohen's passing and with everyone talking about Handmaid's Tale and Alias Grace. It just, they just felt like contemporary um, artists that people would, would recognize, but we certainly could have, you know, we could have mentioned any number of other uh, great Canadian artists and less... less that's oatmealish ones, right? I mean, we, we could talk about George Elliott Clark, Austin Clark, Thomas King, Leanne Simpson. I mean, we, there's any number of names that could be slotted in there. But I think that what all those people have in common, they're all very different artists. But what unites them is the fact that they're not in this just to they're not they're not just in it for a buck. I guess my point is that before this um, this vulgar Creative Canada report came out, there was already a wide gulf between the canon of CanCon luminaries and whether we expand that from our, you know, Atwoods and Cohens to include some other more contemporary people and a more diverse group of people or not. There was always a lot of space between that and the reality of these policies on the ground every day to the production studios trying to get a a show greenlit, to anybody trying to start a new magazine, to uh, people in broadcast journalism, that the economic machinery of CanCon was the the daily meat and potatoes of this stuff. And that stuff existed like, and maybe would exist anyhow, because you're you're talking about inspiration and art and things that like, I'm all for, like you're talking about fine arts and art as an ideal. I like to think that that stuff would probably blossom anyhow, but I'm not, I mean, I would be very happy as a taxpayer to double or triple the commitment to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're in in total agreement on that. Uh, I, I completely agree that I'm all for, for for the government to invest in production studios and that's sort of the ground game of, of this culture. Um, and at a time when, when municipal governments are being asked to pony up, I don't know, I mean, what are the flames asking for? $300 million to produce the new stadium? Like, it seems it seems perverse to, to say that we'll only invest in this sort of endeavor and not that one. But I guess where I, where I get a little bit queasy with, the, with the, the, the purely economic argument is that it ceases to be a good argument the moment that an economist can can say that you know you're better off putting your your tax funded dollars there because it gives a b- bigger return on investment. Um, so I think that there has to be some other kind of rationale for funding in the arts other than the economic one. Well, the the, ra- the rationale then and now is fear, right? That the rationale and you and you point this out, the Massey Commission for all of its uh, high ideals about art and culture was born of fear. It was born of fear that if we did not regulate this space, we would just be overwhelmed. And you know they cooked up a scheme based on the scarcity of mass media outlets that there were only so many channels, only so many frequencies on the dial. And so they devised this kickback scheme where if if you give the public what they want, which is this gross American product, at least you're going to have to put, you know, uh, you know, uh, shave off some pennies off of every dollar and put it in a pot for the Canadian stuff. Well, now it's all flipped. There's no scarcity of channels. Anybody can have a platform. Anybody can have an outlet. And still we're afraid of being overwhelmed. And the boogeyman has shifted its skin a little bit. Now we're afraid of the Facebooks and the Googles and the fake news and the algorithms rhythms and, you know, right. memes and, and, but, but the fear is still there that we'll just cease to be Canadians if, if we don't do something about this, but we don't really have any levers to pull because, you know, the public owned the frequencies, those limited channels, right. but you know, the internet is just wide open for any, anybody. We can't really, I, I guess I'm curious there, like, what do you think? I mean, we're talking about the relationship between 
you know, the industrial side of this, I, I like this plan because it's it's a transitional plan. It's 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 a stopgap mechanism for keeping people employed as they figure out how the hell to compete, which we've never really had to do and which we might have to now. So I think that like greasing that a little bit and leaning on these companies, that seems like a, a good role for government in in just making sure that people's jobs don't stop tomorrow. But the longer term sense of like the relationship between the government and art, what is that ideal relationship? You know, when you think about the Canadian relationship to institutions like the NFB, which I don't think by anyone's estimation are really that important to our cultural lives. And then you think about the role that philanthropy and patronage plays and private institutes and universities and foundations in the States. We don't have that here. Uh, And and I, I wonder if that isn't because we've taken on a bit of a you know, nanny state to to artist relationship here. Anyhow, those are some of my thoughts. What are yours? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, you raise some good points. My my sense of this stuff, of the the, the relationship between the uh, philanthropy and government funding is I'm, I'm leaning a lot on on Nick Mount's book Arrival, which I just I just finished reading. The point that he makes is that the government funds the arts in Canada because philanthropy doesn't, and it and that the historically Canadian art has has received greater philanthropic contributions from American families like the Rockefellers and Carnegie's than it ever has from any Canadian internal Canadian investors. I mean, my my basic view is that the is that you know this may not be a popular view, but I think that the ideal way that I would frame it is to think of artists as as kind of public servants that there that there's there's a like art has always survived on patronage, right? All you know, every great art example of great art that you can that you can think of had some kind of a patron. So I guess that I would prefer to see, you know, when when the Canadian government gave Leonard Cohen a, a grant and he could just, you know, go to Greece and get high with it, and that was that was what he did. You know, what it appears to me is though it's incentivizing artists to rush toward and make deals with Google, Facebook, etc. I, I just don't understand how this will be good for the autonomy and sovereignty of Canadian art by incentivizing relationships with big American technology companies. And I, I think that if you look at the, the track record of that working well, it's incredibly poor. Yeah. You, you, you must know a lot of people who, who try to get grants and, and look to the government to, to supplement or support their artistic endeavors. I mean, not everybody is a, is a Leonard Cohen with that kind of an outcome. I mean, I've trashed that system quite a bit. I think orienting artists towards those grant applications has not yielded the greatest work from a population that actually does produce a lot of wonderful artists. It's a mixed, re- it's a mixed record for sure. Yeah. It's not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not just sort of defending carte blanche, the, uh, the current system. Thank you, Ara. Thank you, Jesse. That's your Canada Land for this week, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me, and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. If you like us on Facebook, our news stories will show up in your Facebook news feed. Or you can go to our website to read them, canadalandshow.com. Once again, The Imposter is back for season two. Aaliyah tries comedy. Go subscribe now if you haven't already. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Some tickets remain for our live taping at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival in Toronto, October 15th. I will be talking with Daniel Dale about reporting, about truth, about fake news, about facts. And I will be making some announcements at that live event. Why don't you be there? hotdocs.ca slash podcast festival. Come say hello. Today's show was produced by Russell Gregg. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,